0: Support for WIPR's podcasts comes from Brightview Senior Living. Since 1999, Brightview has proudly served Greater Baltimore with vibrant, independent living, assisted living, memory care, and enhanced care. Find a community near you at BrightviewSeniorLiving.com. I'm going to actually sanitize my hands and then put on a new pair of gloves. Sanitize my hands again. And at that point, I can take off my N95 respirator, my face shield. I will clean my face shield and I'll put both of them in a brown bag.
1: I pull up to our agency, I get out the car, make sure I have my wallet, my keys, and my mask.
2: Hey everybody, welcome back to the Stoop Storytelling Series podcast. I'm Laura Wexler. And I'm Jessica Hinkin. And this week on the podcast, Invisible Labor, stories from two people performing life-saving work out of the public eye.
3: Before we get started, we want to thank the Park School of Baltimore, which is a pre K through grade 12 nonsectarian, awesome school right outside of the city. So, this first storyteller is Dr. Kat Chamberlain. They are a primary care physician at a community health center and a medical director at an opioid treatment facility and a medical director at the Baltimore Convention Center COVID Field Hospital. So, kind of a badass kind
2: of a badass. And with her story, she really invites us into what, what it's like to work at this field hospital, which was erected in like two hours, not really, but like in a number of days to serve as an overflow place for patients recovering from COVID. Take a listen.
0: So during the summer, every Friday night, I would work 24 hours straight. I would go to my primary care office, I'd see about 30 patients, and then rush to pick my child up at the YMCA, which did a fabulous job for social distancing. From there, I would go home, spend about an hour with my wife, and then I would head to work. During that hour... Most likely, our neighbors would come over and they would have or we would have a social distancing happy hour. They got to drink cold beers. I got to chug hot coffee in the middle of 90 degree heat in Baltimore to get caffeinated for the rest of the night. After this, I would jump on 83, head straight downtown to the Baltimore Convention Center, which is our field hospital for COVID patients. It's an agreement with the state, with Hopkins and University of Maryland. So I don't know if all of you have ever been into the convention center, but if you have, the exhibit hall, which is downstairs, is one big, huge room, and there are no windows. Back in April, the Army Corps of Engineers came in. They put up some temporary walls. They did some magic with the HVAC system, which makes it negative pressure, meaning COVID virus stays in the hospital and doesn't get spread out. They also built rooms, and we have a fully functioning pharmacy, even a snack bar and a lounge for patients. So on this random Friday night, I do what I always do, see patients, pick up my kid, chug coffee, jump on 83, and head downtown. So the field hospital is on the lower level, and there's like, I don't know, two and a half stories of stairs to go down, but there's also an escalator, so I'm going to get on the escalator to go down. In order to get into the field hospital, you have to go through an antechamber, a room that I'm going to put on all of my PPE. So when you go through this antechamber, you walk in, and you first have to scrub your hands uh, with, with um, hand sanitizer, and then you wait 20 seconds. Then you put on a pair of gloves, and then you sanitize your hands again. You have to wait another 20 seconds. From there, you're going to put on your gown, and then wash your hands again, and wait another 20 seconds. From that point, you're going to put on your N95 respirator and your face shield, um, hand sanitize your hands again, and wait another 20 seconds. Then I'm going to put on my second pair of gloves, and then you guessed it, sanitize my hands and wait another 20 seconds. After that, I'm going to spin around, and my spotter is going to check to make sure I'm fully covered, and then I'm going to walk in. When you walk into the field hospital, it is a big, open area. And just like every other COVID unit, it is isolating. Patients can't leave the hospital to go smoke cigarettes. Family members can't come visit. All of us are dressed in this PPE, personal protective equipment, from head to toe, and all patients can see are our eyeballs. So I go in, and on this particular Friday night, I'm going to meet this patient, John, for the first time. And John has given me permission to talk about his story. John is a 40-year-old male, and he's actually also an essential employee. He works at a hospital in the food service industry. So I go to talk to him and hear his story, and he tells me that he got sick of you know, maybe a week ago. He thinks he got it from work at the hospital, but he's not sure. He was hospitalized three days before he came to us, and his lungs are pretty damaged already. He's already on oxygen, and this is a grown man who can't walk more than 20 yards without becoming short of breath and needing to stop and take a break he tells me that his mom is a little bit sick and his sister, who he lives with, might be sick too. He's not for sure. Well, I finish up with him, take his vitals, do what I need to do, and go on with the rest of my evening. The next morning, I leave around six or seven in the morning, and in order to leave the field hospital, I have to go through three rooms. The first room, I go in. First, I knock on the door. I'm let in. I'm going to go and If you haven't already guessed it, I'm going to sanitize my hands and wait for 20 seconds. Then I'm going to take off my first set of gloves, sanitize my hands, wait another 20 seconds. Then I'm going to take off my gown, throw it away, sanitize my hands, wait 20 more seconds. After that, I can take off this second pair of gloves, sanitize my hands, and wait 20 seconds. After that, I'm going to go into a second room. From there, I'm going to actually sanitize my hands and then put on a new pair of gloves sanitize my hands again, and at that point, I can take off my N95 respirator, my face shield. I will clean my face shield, and I'll put both of them in a brown bag. I will sanitize my hands yet again, take off those gloves, sanitize my hands again, put on my face mask. From there, I'm going to go to a third room. At that room, I am actually going to be able to wash with water and soap my hands. I can also take a shower if I want. At that point, I'm allowed to finally leave the field hospital. As I drive home, I get on 83, I see the signs thanking me for being an essential worker. I get home, I crash for a few hours. The next Friday night, same thing. Go to work, see patients, pick kid up, drink lots of coffee, head down 83, sanitize my hands a thousand times, put on two pairs of gloves, my gown, my face mask, my respirator, and I get to go in. This time around though, I'm hearing some bad news about John. John just found out his mother died. I get myself together and I go talk to John, hear his story. John tells me his mother died of COVID at a hospital alone, far away. His sister is also sick and his sister is hospitalized. His 12-year-old nephew who he lives with is also COVID positive and is alone. He's asymptomatic and he's at home. His neighbors are checking on this 12-year-old boy who is alone while the rest of the family is hospitalized. John's still on oxygen, and I ask him, why are you still here? We can get you oxygen. I can get insurance to pay you for oxygen. I can figure that out. I can get you home to be with your family. He tells me he wants to stay because to him, his mother means strength. He needs to get strong so he can go home to his family. He needs to get strong so he can be there for the rest of his community, his family, and his sister. I look on this wall and there's pictures of his family. He gave the nurse permission to get on Facebook to print off pictures of his family so he wouldn't be as alone or isolated. At that point, I tried my best not to cry, but here's the deal. Tears are going to roll up in my eyes. And because everything in the COVID hospital, the hot zone, is considered infected with COVID, I can't touch my eyes. I just have to let the tears drop down my N95. I thank him for his story. I promise him we're going to do everything we can to get him home as quick and as safely as possible. Next morning, I leave. Same thing. I wash my hands a thousand times. I take off my gloves. I jump on 83, and I see the signs thanking me for being an essential worker. And and to be honest, that makes me feel good. I go home. I crash. The next Friday night... You guessed it, same thing. See 30 patients, go pick up my kid, go home, my wife and friends get to have cold beers, and I get to chug hot coffee. I go down to the field hospital, and I hear some good news. John is doing better. He's off oxygen, and he's going to be home soon. So I go to see him, and I'm listening to him and, and doing my work for the evening. He's thanking me um, for my services, and, of course, it's, it's my absolute pleasure but he tells me he's never going to remember me. There's, he met way too many people. He's not going to remember my name, which is fine. He's never going to recognize me because he's only ever seen my eyes. So he brings out his Bible, and he asked me to sign his Bible, which means such a great deal to me. So I thanked him for his time here and, and allowing us to be a part of his recovery. That next morning, I go home like I always do. I sanitize my hands a thousand times, take off my PPE, get into my car, and head up 83. I see the signs thanking me for being an essential worker. But there's a lot of people we need to be thanking right now. There's a lot of unsung and invisible heroes during this COVID crisis. Let's say, for example, um, John's neighbor's. They went to check on this boy who was alone, whose grandmother just died, whose mother is in the hospital, whose uncle is in the hospital. They put themselves at risk to help out this child. Thank you. How about those patients who aren't sick enough to go into the hospital, but who are locking the door and quarantining themselves in their own house not not to infect the rest of their family? Those are also heroes during all of this. And just like John, who chose to self-isolate by himself, uh, not by himself, but alone at this field hospital. He was not just physically alone, physically separated from his family, but he was also emotionally and mentally alone as well. But he did that because he knew it was the best thing for him to get better for his family. He knew he needed to do that to protect his family, to protect his community, to protect our society from COVID. Look, we're all in this together and we can get through this together together. But we all have to do what we need to do. So thank you. So yeah. So Kat
3: actually just got the vaccine and has been doing this hilarious day by day on social media about the side effects of the of the vaccine because she has many family members who told her not to get it that you know either it was a hoax or it's not going to work um, or you're going to have side effects and. Um, and she's had none, no side effects um, other than these funny tidbits that she talks about on social media. Like um, That's awesome. So,
2: Like what? Like what was one of the weird
3: ones? Oh, um, like her arm hurt, but um, not from the vaccine, but because like she banged it on the side <laughs> after having a beer kind of thing. Like she's just That's she's awesome. by, yeah, taking it um, with a grain of salt.
2: That's awesome. All right. Well, before we hear from our next storyteller, we want to thank Golden West, a vegan Southwestern restaurant on the Avenue in Hamden. Please support them during the pandemic and afterward. And Baltimore Magazine, you can find them online and on the newsstand. So this next storyteller is a really, really lovely young man, Elijah McBride. And this was a case where I read about Elijah um, in the newspaper and basically stalked him until he succumbed and I just got so fascinated in what it would be like to be a person on the receiving end of crises that in a lot of cases people only feel comfortable sharing with a stranger that it is the anonymity of a crisis line which Elijah works for the Baltimore City Crisis Response As a crisis hotline counselor, that so much of what he heard, he heard because he didn't know the person and he was anonymous and he was a voice on a line. And so anyway, please listen to this look inside what it's like to to be working in a hotline like this during a time like the pandemic when more people are in crisis than usual.
1: It's mid-May of earlier this year. For many of us, we're experiencing a pandemic, a global pandemic. Many of us are working from home or without jobs, without food and basic needs. But for me, I'm an essential worker. So our agency stays open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So it's a typical day for me. I pull up to our agency, I get out the car, make sure I have my wallet, my keys, and my mask. I put my gloves on, I speak to anyone in the parking lot, wave my hand, and I scan it with my badge. I fingerprint into our uh, time clock, and I make my way downstairs to answer a series of questions. Where have you been? Uh, Have you knowingly been in in touch with anyone that had COVID-19? I get my temperature checked, and I make my way up to the elevator. Going into the elevator, and let me say, the elevator music is pretty good this time. Pretty good this time. So I'm going into the elevator, and I go up to the third floor where our, our department is located, and I punch the numbers and the codes to get in. I grab my favorite mug, and get my coffee two creams two sugars and I grab a little snack for one that's available and I sit down at my desk I log into our database and I wait for a call now for me calls ranges so I can get anyone who's calling for it. trying to figure out when the trash is gonna be picked up they broke their lawnmower and they need a handyman or someone to come by to cut their lawn or even Someone that has a gun to their head that's saying, you have 60 seconds to give me a reason to live. But this day, I get a call, pick up the phone, and for the sake of the story, I call her name Sarah. She was crying hysterically, going through, in my opinion at the time, which was an anxiety attack. So I do our typical protocol, which is our breathing techniques. So I tell her to breathe in, to hold it, and to breathe out. I tell her to do it again. Breathe in. This time to hold it a little bit longer and then breathe out. After Sarah calms down, she goes on to tell me that she's a nurse in Baltimore. and How she's been overwhelmed, overworked, and simply tired of, tired of living. She goes on to describe to me the hospital conditions. The lack of resources. The lack of ventilators. The lack of staff. The days she literally had to almost sleep in the hospital. And I'm sitting there and I'm listening to all this. She also goes to describe me some of the faces of the patients she's dealt with. Faces of anguish, pain and faces of death. One conversation she did bring up was a conversation she had, and we'll call his name Matt. He was a 40-year-old husband and father of two. Never had any health conditions, but was clinging on to his life because of COVID-19. She said that he asked her a question. He said the the question he asked her was, was he going to be okay? Was he going to make it? Well, Matt died two days later after that conversation. After she said that, I sat back. I was like, what am I going to say to this woman? I'm 23 years old. I'm about six months on to the job. My major is criminal justice. What am I going to say? So I sit back and I remember as a child, my grandfather always told me, son. It's one thing to hear something. But it's another thing to be listening to something. So, OK. So I'm listening to her talk and she's telling me some more information. And she says, well. Say something. So I said, well, don't worry, Sarah. I'm listening. Good thing is, she was able to calm down. We was able to set her up with some mental health resources, as we usually do. And we was able to, she had private insurance. We was able to see what insurance care she had to give her the correct information so she can get a therapist and some treatment. But the most important part in all of this is, days, weeks, and months passed, and my supervisor came in. She said, "Hey, you know, you 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 got a someone called by the name of Sarah, and they wanted to say thank you." So again, the job that I do, a lot of times, I have to switch my mindset because I can go from one call to a person needing this to another call with a person needing something that doesn't even have anything to do with the last call. So a lot of times, I don't even remember the caller that I talked to by the end of the day. So I went into the database, and I typed her information in, and I saw her number, and I decided to give her a call. So, hey, Sarah, and began to talk, and she said, thank you for listening to me that day that's truly all I wanted so that story really touched me in a way I was six months onto the job I was new to the whole field but thanks to the agency most of all thanks to my grandfather who's been deceased now for approximately 13 to 14 years, who told me the importance, and showed me the importance of listening and providing a listening ear to people that need help. So what I say to you today and what I say to everybody, this is a trying time, but always know that you have a listening ear. Our agency is here and Thank you so much for the story, and please, everyone, stay safe. Thank you.
3: What I love about that story is that he's actually, he is seen um, that, you know, the person that he helped took the time to seek him out and yeah. acknowledge him. And that's really beautiful and exceptional. And yeah. he, he had such a presence of, you know, it was one of the few shows we've done during the, the pandemic where we, we were all there in person using all the COVID safety and, um, and he just has a, such a, a reassuring, wonderful presence about him.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I love just like chatting with him that, night of the show and he he told me just these really interesting details that like in sort of in the morning the calls he gets are more people asking for like a specific kind of help like I need a referral for this or I need to find out where I can get that and then as the day wears on it's more likely to be people who are just wanting to talk. And does it like the afternoon and the evening are are lonelier times, or are when people feel like they need an ear more more so than a referral, you know? And that's when oh. he really just listens. Yeah. So
3: before well, we get out of here, yeah, go ahead. before well, I was just going to say before we get out of here, we want to thank the Wine Source, which is another place you can go for crisis response. And if you <laughs> want to find someone, oh my just God, to God, that's listen. awful. <laughs> located in Hamden in Baltimore and um, they have been uh, a sanctuary for many during the pandemic and continue to be so. with their incredible inventory and price points. So thank you, wine sources. <laughs> and
2: thank you to Maureen Harvey who always listens to us even when we ramble on <laughs> and uh, produces the podcast for us. And you can find us at stoopstorytelling.com. You can learn about our shows and events there, and you can find our podcast wherever you get your audio content. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you soon. Stay safe. And I'll be your
1: friend. I'll help.